Good morning. I'd like to thank the praise team for preaching my sermon. You're all free to go now, so... Not really. It's very good to see you all here this morning as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, um, which means we're making our way through the Beatitudes. Today we come to the ninth verse in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, which says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And there is so much in this little verse that God is saying, and I promise you as we work our way through it, if you're listening at all, you will not escape what God is saying to every Christian and really every non-Christian unbeliever who hears these words of Jesus. This beatitude is about being a peacemaker. But before we get to that part, we need to talk about peace. We talk about what real peace is, what it really is. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then he said, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Well, what does that mean? He's talking about what we could call, what we will call today, worldly peace. And what he's saying is that the world itself, life, circumstances, relationships, possessions, whatever it might be, money, cannot give you real peace. Cannot give you biblical peace. Godly peace. Again, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, but not as the world gives. Because the world doesn't give peace that's real peace. So, what I'd like to do this morning is look at three things. Number one, what is peace, as I said. Number two, what is a peacemaker? And number three, be a peacemaker. I greeted you this morning by saying good morning which is obviously how we greet each other in our culture. But if we could suddenly, somehow, I would say magically, but it's a Baptist church, so we can't say magically, but somehow or another end up in Hawaii, we wouldn't say good morning. We would say to each other, and probably rather enthusiastically, uh-huh, I'm looking out that door, and we are not in Hawaii. So it's not a bad day, but we're not in Hawaii. So anyway, in Israel... In the Jewish culture, they have a greeting as well. It's not aloha and it's not good morning. They have a word, one word. They say shalom, shalom. And that word means a lot. When we talk about peace, shalom means a lot. So if we're going to learn about what it is to be a peacemaker, we need to know what God means when he says peace. We need to know what he's talking about when he says peace. And he means shalom. And we will get into that word a little bit. I started talking about biblical peace versus what the world calls peace. And the only similarities between biblical peace and worldly peace are that they're spelled the same. It's, they are radically different. So not even close, all right? So well, let's look. What is worldly peace? That's the first thing we're going to ask. Worldly peace could be, and it's a broad term. And there's a lot you could throw in this. But there were three things I identified that you see, we see in life that the world will call peace. Number one is not fighting. If you're not fighting, the world calls that peace. Well, things are peaceful. No, they're not. Have you ever heard of peacekeeping troops around the world? <laughs> they're standing there with guns so somebody didn't kill each other. 
That's not peace. That is not in the least bit what God would call peace. On a smaller scale, okay, I keep getting older every day, I swear. Some of you don't know what the Cold War was. Yeah, but the Cold War took place 800 years ago or what, 40 years ago. Anyway, it was basically the United States, NATO, probably don't even know what NATO, does NATO still exist? Anyway, it was us against the Russians in essence. There was never a war, but we build weapons and more weapons and more weapons and more weapons, and they call it a Cold War. We were at each other's throats, but no one pulled the trigger, thank the Lord, okay? On a personal level, how many Cold Wars are you engaged in? On a personal level, okay, I'm tolerating you, but that's all I'm doing. So on a personal level, not fighting is not peace. Whether it's a coworker, a spouse, a child, a parent, it doesn't matter. That is not peace. Don't think to yourself, well, at least there's peace. At least we have peace. No, you don't. That is not what God calls peace. Number two, giving in. Keep the peace. Giving in isn't always wrong. But a lot of times it is. Giving in is not always wrong, but if you're going to get along by giving in to what someone's doing and it's sinful, that is wrong. If you look the other way, if you say, you know, this is the best we can do, and you let the sin go, that's not peace, that's sin. So again, that's easy for me to stand here and say because in life, let's face it, it's hard to call somebody out and say, that is wrong. It might cost you. It might cost you a lot. But you have to do that. Number three, applying a muzzle is not peace. In, in the culture we live in, you know this, especially right now, if you say certain things or if you even say you believe certain things, buddy, you're in trouble. We have passed laws and we're trying to pass more laws to stop people from saying things that someone else finds offensive. Well, typically, all that does is build up pressure until the person's true feelings make their way to the top and then they go kaboom. And it's really bad. You're never going to win that battle. You're never going to win. You're not going to change someone by doing that. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you go, that's why I don't read the Bible because what does that mean? Okay, That means if it's in there, it's coming out. Eventually, it's going to make its way to the surface and it's going to come out. So putting a muzzle on somebody, telling them not to say something, is not peace. That is not peace. Those are just a few examples of what worldly, quote-unquote, peace looks like. So if that's the case, what about true peace? What about real peace, biblical peace? And as I said, biblical peace is shalom. And I'm going to spend more time talking about peace today than I am actually the beatitude because this sets the stage for it. Because we have to understand what biblical peace is if we're going to be true peacemakers. So biblical peace, I said shalom. What does shalom mean? The very word itself is loaded with blessing. The definition of shalom can be summed up with the words you see on the screen. Um, so you were looking at completeness. I, I like the word wholeness better. I think it just... Talks, speaks better, soundness, welfare, peace, safety, prosperity, and, and I think tranquility and contentment. 
But, but again, the word wholeness, I think, is probably the best definition. Um, being complete, lacking in nothing, and the, the contentment, the quietness that, that comes with that. Uh, one writer said that Shalom has within it a desire, and this is really a big part of it, a desire for all the goodness that God could give. I wish for you, once you say Shalom, I wish for you every good thing that God gives. That's, and it's in your heart. Granted, maybe if you say, hey, Shalom, that's not your, your you know, momentary thought, but that's the meaning of the term, which is why I say it's, it's what we relate to biblical peace. So biblical peace is Shalom, the source of peace. What is the source of peace? Where does this peace come from? It's God. Shalom starts with God. God is the source of Shalom. God is the source of peace. The Bible refers to God as the God of peace. Sometimes at Christmas, you'll see this verse where Isaiah talks about the Messiah, about Jesus, and he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. So God the Father is the God of Peace, and Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. By the way, I know what you're thinking. When you see Everlasting Father, that's not referring to God the Father. And I don't want to get into deep weeds here, but what it means... Remember, this is a Hebrew phrase that was translated into American English. And so what he's saying is that Jesus is the source, the, the author, the creator. So he is the father of creator, of everything that is everlasting. Um, more or less, that's what it means. If you want more information on that, you can email me. My email address is kurt.tyra at gmail.com. Anytime, day or night. I'll give you my cell phone later, okay? So to summarize, worldly peace is not peace. Biblical peace is shalom. Wholeness, contentment, tranquility, and blessing from God. God is a God of peace, and without him there is no peace. But when you think about biblical peace, this is the best illustration I've ever seen. This really says it best. It's a story about a guy, his name is Jim Walton, and he was translating the New Testament for a tribe of people in the jungles of Colombia. And this was not like in the 1800s. This was somewhat recently. So he said he was having a hard time coming up with a way to translate anything into the word peace. Well, at some point, there was this guy named Fernando, and he was the village chief. And he was promised a, a, a plane ride from point A to point B that would take 20 minutes to fly, but by, because of the mountainous region, it would take three days to walk. So, yeah, I want to take the ride on the plane. Well, the plane was late, and I don't know Fernando, but Fernando was not happy, so he just took off on foot, and here comes the plane, sort of like what happens to us sometimes. But when the plane got there, he wasn't that far, so they sent a runner to go get Fernando. So he gets the runner, or the, he gets Fernando, brings him back, the plane's gone. Well, Fernando was hot. And he lit into Jim. I don't know what Jim did, okay, but he went off on Jim and, and he wasn't happy. Well, Jim recorded this whole thing. He recorded the whole diatribe and he kept noticing that during the chief's anger outburst, he kept saying, I don't have one heart. I don't have one heart. And so Jim asked the villagers, he goes, what does that mean? And they said, when, you, when someone says you, you don't have one heart, or I'm sorry, when you say, I have one heart, what it means is there is nothing between you and me. There's no obstacles. There's no problems between you and me. And he said, I don't have one heart. I don't have one heart. Because that was so key in their culture. 
that there's nothing at all. You know what that is? That is shalom. That's exactly what that is, biblical peace, to have that kind of perfection. When Jim heard that, he had it. It is, this is biblical peace, summary. It is perfect, perfect harmony with God. Now you can say, well, what about another person? It starts with God, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But that is biblical peace. So the world calls peace one thing, and it's not. Biblical peace is perfect harmony with God. But there's a problem, and that problem is sin. Sin entered the world through Adam, and the shalom, this shalom that had existed in the beginning in God's creation was gone because of sin. And we experience the brunt of that every second of every day. And there are so many times when we pray here on Sunday mornings, and you got to sit here when you hear these things that people are going through and know that that's because of sin. Sin is just awful. If we, we, if we understood how bad sin is, if we understood the terrible things that happen in this world because of sin, it would change our, our perspective on a lot of things. Scripture says that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and that death came into the world through sin. Sin came into the world and death followed. So death spread to all men because all men have sinned. And death here, yes, it does include physical death, disease, but first and foremost, as bad as those things are, Death, in this sense, means separation from God. That's a key phrase. If you're taking some kind of notes today, sin is separation from God. Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he can't save. His ear is not dull that he can't hear. These are the saddest words in Scripture. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden, your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. Your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and between God. And that's the worst possible situation anyone could be in. And that's what sin does. It is horrible, but that's the state of fallen humanity. Our sins have caused this gulf between us and God. And we, you and I, cannot bridge that gap. No way can we make that work. It is impossible for man to please God on our own. We stand, even if we did want God at that point, we would stand at this gulf and look and say, I can't get there. I am lost. I have no hope. Because you can't do it. You, you hear right now about these, um, the cargo ships and a supply chain, right? And, and you know... We're, we're going to start running out of everything because there's nobody to deliver it. And if you will just engage me for a moment of exaggeration, the end result is that we're all going to get cut off and we're all going to die. Okay, well, that's not going to happen. But that is what happened between mankind and God because of sin. Again, there was no hope. We were stuck there and couldn't do anything. But Isaiah says that because of our sins, we don't have this hope. We have nothing. That's why Paul the Apostle, to add on to that, says that mankind is dead in, I'm going to say, our trespasses. Mankind is following the course of the world. Whatever comes on CNN, that's what I need to do. 
Whatever the, whatever the world says, this is cool. I'm going to do that. Oh, this is trendy. I need to follow that. Chase this, chase that. Doesn't matter. I'll do whatever the world says. That's who we are without Christ. We are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is Satan. Following Satan. Following these de demonic things he says. Notice it says in the sons of disobedience. Just hang on to that for a second. Living in the, in the passions of our flesh and, and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If it sounds good, I'm going to do it. There's no standard. There's no nothing. We're doing what we want to do. And God calls that extremely sinful. And we are, we are just by our very nature, children of wrath. That is the world. That is the world around us. That is every person who is not saved. Granted, that was a rough translation. That's Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses. Um, but it's close. It, it gets the point across. We are, by our nature, even us, when we're born in this world, children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. God's righteous anger against sin. Because he's just. And because he's just, he must punish that sin. He has to punish sin. And I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here, but please stay with me. I'll be very straight up with you. I put this in, I took it out, took, put it in, took it out. And as of this morning, it's in. So please follow me. Remember, we're talking about biblical peace. We're, we're talking about being saved. We're talking about all these different things. But the focus this morning is Jesus. All right? The focus is Jesus. Keep that in mind as I launch here, okay? Isaiah said that our sins have separated us from God and that the end result of that separation is death, like I just said. And that death means not just physical death, again, it means eternal separation from God. And if you don't know, that means hell. And it means God's wrath being poured out on sinners in hell Forever. Never, ever, ever, ever ending. And I can't do that. It amazes me that people scoff at God. It amazes me that people who would claim Christ as their Savior would set God on a shelf and leave them there during the week. Leave them there until they think they need them. Again, a lot of these people would call themselves Christians. I come from a Catholic background, so when I got saved, it was just a different culture. Y'all talk funny. You ever heard of Christianese? You know, I was hearing words I didn't know what they meant, you know, and I would hear, you know, I was a young guy, I was 24, 25 years old, and I hear people say, well, I was saved when I was 17. And I'm trying to figure out what it meant to be saved, for one thing. And it's like, well, I gave my life to God. And I think, well, when did you take it back? Because I'm not seeing it. And, and I run into people now who are my age, 40, and, and they're <laughs> saying, I was saved when I was 17. And you're like, you, you, don't, you don't have anything to do with God. People take for granted the Lord. They just take him for granted. And they refuse to honor him with their lives. There's a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
And it's, it was written a long time ago, 1600, I think it was completed in 1647. And it's a series of questions that some pretty good theologians came up with. And they asked the question, and then they answered the questions by digging through scripture, and they printed this out for people to see. And it, it's a great document. And the first question, the very first question they posed was, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why are we here? Why did God create us? And the answer they found in the Bible repeatedly was man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we were created. Write it down, do whatever, dig in the scriptures and find out that that's true. That's absolutely true. That's a pretty good answer. And yet, so many people, again, who claim to be saved, just don't do this. For all sorts of reasons, they're inclined not to honor God. And as a result, they cheat themselves out of the chance to enjoy God. Do you ever think about enjoying God? If you don't know him, I don't think you would. How many people, how many of your friends do you get to know? And then you enjoy their friendship. It's the same thing with God. But more often than not, not do they, they don't just not want to enjoy God, the honor part of it. They want to honor themselves, which if you play that out, it makes you God. Think it all the way through. It makes you the Lord. You're the Lord of your life. The chief end of lost people is to glorify themselves and to enjoy themselves, not God. Don't do that. There, there are people watching this on the internet. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Your life is in Jesus. Don't do that. Instead, live. Live for God. Let Jesus be the source of, of everything for you. Let Jesus be your life. That's what he desires and that's what he commands. Give up all the ungodly trash, all the ungodly junk in your life and live your life for the God who created you and loves you with an everlasting love. You know what God said about that? He said this, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. You delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you all the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Listen, you have nothing to lose. And my friend, you have everything to gain. Everything to gain. You know why? One, one word, one name. It's Jesus. That's who. This whole thing this morning is about Jesus. The peace I'm talking about, biblical peace, the absolute perfect harmony with God, as I said, it was lost when Adam sinned, but it was won back at the cross. Why should you worship Jesus? Why should you give him your life? Because he went to that cross and won that back. It was won back by the power of the cross. Earlier, I showed you a obviously pretty rough translation of Ephesians chapter 2. Here it is word for word. You were spiritually dead. Dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work, here it is again, in the sons of disobedience. And among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. All of us. And we liked it. We liked carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But we were by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God which was on us. And please get this. Like it's right now on the rest of mankind. The wrath of God right now sits on the rest of mankind. Everyone you know who's not saved. God's wrath is there. We, if you're a Christian, have been saved from that wrath. We've been saved from our sins. Which Isaiah said, again, had separated us, had, had created that, that gap, that gorge, if you will. Our sins, which prevent us from having that wonderful, perfect shalom, that perfect harmony with God, that peace that passes all understanding, God's grace saved us from that. It saved us from the, oh man, horrible, horrible, righteous wrath of God that we deserved. Amen? But is that it? Is that all? You would think that would be enough that he would save us from that. But what do they say on the game shows? Don't answer. There's more, right? And I'm not trying to equate God with the game show. I'm just saying it keeps going. God loves us so much. And because his grace is so amazing, look at this. He has raised us up with Jesus. As sinners, he paid the price. Everything Toby said, he paid our price. He paid for our sins. That should have been enough. No, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. God has raised us up with Jesus and he has seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That means that we're saved, okay? Why? Why did he do that? So that God wants to be glorified, right? Why did God do it? He did it so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen, the Bible makes it very clear that God wants to be known. And he wants us to know everything about him. That's why you can't put him on a shelf all week. And in this instance, God says, he's going to let the verse up there. He says, I'm going to show all of creation what happens when you're saved, when you give your life to Jesus. The, I'm going to show them the unbelievable showering of every good thing that I can give when you belong to Jesus, when you come to me. And by the way, that's shalom, right? The showering of every good thing, everything God can give us. And the passage finishes by saying, by declaring, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, let's ask a couple questions. Faith in who and faith in what? You've got to get this. You've got to get this. First of all, faith in Jesus. And second, faith in the fact the what he did on the cross satisfied the wrath of God for the sins that you and I have committed. He paid the price and God was satisfied with it. So all we have to do then is accept that truth. You can't earn your way. You can't say, okay, Jesus did that, but now I need to do some things. That's not how it works. It is to some extent counterintuitive because in the world we live in, we do earn things, right? I mean, you work hard and you get a reward. And most of the things we do, you know, when you're a little kid, you clean your room and you get a pat on the back or whatever. 
Our whole world is working to achieve something and being rewarded for it. So it, I understand why it's hard for people to go, well, wait a minute. If I just believe this, God says, yeah, you just believe that. However, and this is where it always gets murky. When someone says, I believe that, you need to look. Man, this is so important. Because when we say, I put my faith in Jesus, that means much more than agreeing in your mind that what he did on the cross satisfied God. If you put your faith in somebody, if you believe in somebody, you will listen to them. And because Jesus is God, and because he bought our salvation with his blood, you should listen and then obey. Jesus said this, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and he couldn't shake it because it was built well. But the one who hears and doesn't do them is like a man who built a house on the ground with no foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. In John 14, Jesus says very simply, if you love me, if you love me, keep my commandments. Let me say one more thing about this because as I said, I really want you to know Jesus. You've got to know Jesus. My, my heart's desire this past week, several weeks, was that when you walk out of here, you know Jesus better than you did when you walked in. It's overwhelming to me that how much I want you to get that. I would ask you please, in this instance, to turn in your Bibles to Colossians, if you don't mind. Take your, book, your Bible and turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And I want to start at verse 9 of Colossians, chapter 1. I'm not going to put this on the screen. I, I just kind of wanted you to look it up on your own. Colossians, chapter 1 is right before Colossians, chapter 2. Sorry. Starting at verse 9. And let me preface to, to say one more time. Well, it's not going to be the last time. But I want you to know who Jesus is. We need to know who Jesus is. We need to understand who Jesus is and how that impacts us. He says, and Paul the Apostle is writing, and he says, and so from the day we heard, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, I want to stop for one second. I don't have this figured out yet, but... Jesus said, you ask anything in my name and you'll get it. And you sit here and you go, I asked this in your name and I didn't get it. The more I study scripture, I hope I don't have to come back and recant this, but the more I study scripture, the more I see where God says, I want you to have knowledge of me. I want you to know me. The blessings are in knowing God. So like I said, I don't have that figured out yet, but keep that in mind as you read this, okay? Paul is praying asking not that they get new houses, not that they get new jobs, not a new car. Paul says that he's asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and in all understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It is a privilege to be a Christian. It is an amazing privilege to be in God's family. And we should walk worthy of that, fully pleasing to him, 
Here we go. Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Second time he said it. Being strengthened by God with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father. And here we go again. The Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is so key for what we're talking about this morning. He has delivered. He is the one that brought peace. He delivered us. He gave us that peace. He's the one that initiated the peace and delivered us from the domain of darkness. And God transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. Now he's talking, Paul's talking about Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything Jesus Christ might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And what did he do? He made peace by the blood of his cross. We owe Jesus everything. Look at this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But the truth is he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Jesus, the chastisement that brought us peace. Again, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with God. And with his wounds, we are healed. Why does Jesus deserve our praise? Why does he deserve our lives? Why does God's word say that whatever you do, do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? If you're at work, Jesus is my boss. If you're at school, Jesus is my parent. It, it doesn't matter. You do everything for Jesus because he saved you from that eternity in hell. If you're a Christian today, if you have given your life, your life, not Sunday mornings, if you have given your life to him and said, you are now the Lord of my life. If that's true in your life, then he has saved you from this eternity. Like I said earlier, eternity forever and ever and ever. He saved you from that. Is there anything greater there is nothing greater than that. And that's why when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, we pursue peace. Godly peace, biblical peace, shalom. But don't ever forget, the only reason we have this peace is because of Jesus. There, there is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful conclusion to this matter of peace. And it's the first verse of chapter five in Romans it is beautiful. If you understand the context, I hope you're with me. But it says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we have that through our Lord, Jesus Christ.
I'm going to talk about reconciliation in a couple minutes, but that is so key. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. So, so that's as much as I can tell you about peace. And, and those of you who know me well know that I'm dying here because I've left so much on the table. Um, but there's much more, so we need to move on. Okay, so that's what peace is. Let's talk about a peacemaker. What is a peacemaker? In its simplest form, a biblical peacemaker is someone who shares the gospel. I can feel that standing here, the pushback. Whoa. You want me to witness to people, right? I don't know how. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Tell them about Jesus. Don't, don't be afraid of making mistakes. Don't be afraid. First of all, read your Bible and find out who Jesus is. Spend time in the word of God and then share him with the world that needs him for eternity. Okay? Do that. That's in the simplest form what a peacemaker is. A peacemaker makes peace. Jesus did. Make peace at home. Make peace at school. Make, make peace wherever you are. A peacemaker, though, is humble, like Jesus was. All right? I don't know if, if, you're, if you were saved at a young age or whatever, but have you ever seen someone basically pick up a Bible and beat someone half to death with it? You need to be saved. You know, I'm just like, that's a good tool, you know. Um, discretion is such a big deal. But a peacemaker is humble. A peacemaker is humble. It matters. Share the gospel, but your demeanor does matter. How you behave does matter. A, a peacemaker, there's a, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones who, um, he's great. He's dead, but he was great when he was alive. He said this, what, it, what is it then to be a peacemaker? A peacemaker is one about whom we can say two main things. Passively, we can say he's peaceable. For a quarrelsome person can't be a peacemaker. And then actively, this person must be pacific. That means uh, like a pacifist. He must be peaceful. He must be one who makes peace actively. He's not content to let sleeping dogs lie. And I kind of said that earlier. You can't just watch things go on and not do something about it. He's not concerned about maintaining the status quo because there's sin there and people are in their sin. Instead, he desires peace and he does all he can to maintain it. He's a man who is finally and ultimately concerned about the fact that all men should be at peace with God. And the only thing that, that, that makes you at peace with God is the gospel, accepting the gospel. That should be our hearts. That should be all of our hearts, enough that we share the gospel. I know it's scary. I know you could be rejected. I'm not saying this from a prideful standpoint at all, but I witness to a lot of people. But you know what? I don't witness to a lot of people as well. I have a tendency to come home from where I've been and, and talk about to my wife, I, I had this chance, I could have said something, I didn't do it, you know. But the more you do something, the easier it is. So do it. Just do it. Do everything for Jesus. But share, be a peacemaker. A, a peacemaker is someone who tells the truth. Okay, another way to say that is someone who's a peacemaker starts an argument. But Jesus did. He told the truth. Why? Because a false peace, it keeps going back to this, this, this around you, this, this tension. Uh, uh, this false peace is more dangerous than an open war. <laughs> Much more dangerous. Because the problems are just covered over. And like I said at the beginning, that's not peace. And God doesn't want that. We are to be peacemakers. As peacemakers, you, you never compromise to bring about worldly peace. 
I don't know what you're thinking, but if you're sitting there thinking, that's easy for you to say, pal. You know, Thanksgiving coming up. If I witness my family, kaboom. I understand that. My whole family is still Catholic. It's, it's so hard to witness to them. But they don't know. If I don't share Jesus with them, if I don't share the gospel with them, that where are they going to end up? Does it matter? You bet it matters. Isn't that more important? So be a peacemaker by sharing the word. There, there's a, a verse in, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6 says, they dress the wound. He's talking about these false prophets of the day. They dress the wound of my people as though it weren't serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Another guy said this, we have to be able to enter the conflict, to take the blows like Jesus did, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to pay the price, to be bold, and to charge right through with what we know is right. If we bow out as tough situations, we can't be peacemakers. He said, when I see a person living in sin, and if I were really a peacemaker as Jesus would want me to be, I have to go to that person and say, you're offending a holy God. He's dead on. He says, you have to say that you are by your life at war with God. And then you say, I want you to, I want you to make peace. I want, you to make, I want there to be peace between you and God. And he says, so you say something to the effect of, I'm confronting you with your sin and offering you the gospel of Jesus. And then it's up to God. That's what we do. A peacemaker, I'm, I'm almost done. A peacemaker, by the way, because you're worried about it, will be persecuted. Jesus was. You know, the world that we live in kind of assumes that it'll welcome Christians you know, with open arms until the first time it meets the genuine article, and for, until the first time you give them the gospel. Everybody, the, the culture still likes Jesus. You talk about Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus is a great man, he's a great teacher. But if you give them the gospel and convict them of their sin, they'll turn on you. If you're giving them the straight truth, they don't want to hear it. It tells them they're bad. It, 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 some of you remember that before you got saved. Someone coming up and you say, you're a sinner. You know, and that you equate that with, well, I'm a bad person. You can be a wonderful, wonderful person, you know this, and be a sinner and be unsaved. So, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. What's the Bible say about discretion? I mentioned that earlier. You should read Proverbs. Proverbs 19, 11 says something that we should all know, all right? It says, good sense makes one slow to anger. So let's look at that part first. Good sense is the ESV translation. Discretion is another way to say it. What you say, how you say, I don't know. We have friends and, and you probably have friends as well. Not you, of course, but your friends. Who, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Right? You know anybody like that? It's not what you say, it's how you said it. Discretion is huge. I can't tell you how many times people don't use discretion. Okay, but good sense makes one slow to anger. Part of this, though, the second half of this verse, you need to keep in mind. And I'm doing a balancing act here, and then I'm going to finish. I sat here for the last however many minutes talking, you should share the gospel. You should you tell people about their sin. All right? And when someone offends you, you need to make peace there. All right? In the home, in families, there's always, you know, brother, sister, whatever. 
And again, you're not the one causing that, it's them, right? I get that, you know. It's always their fault, not my fault. I know because I grew up in a family of five and I never did anything wrong. It was always those kids who just did stuff and I, I got in trouble for it. No one's even crying for me, I don't know why. But anyway, okay. <laughs> Let's just leave it there. I have discussed what peace is and what peace is not. What a peacemaker does and what he doesn't and how you can become a peacemaker through Jesus Christ. But in closing, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question and I'm asking you to take this very seriously as if life or death depended on it. Please do that. Please consider this question with that sort of gravity. You ready? Because this is serious. I mean it. And for some people, it's not an easy question to answer. And the question is this. You say you're saved. Do you want to be a peacemaker? Ask yourself that question. Do I want to be a peacemaker? Really and truly. In your life, in your world. Do you want to be what Jesus calls a peacemaker? I'm not asking if you've been born again. I'm not asking you to consider whether or not you're a Christian. I'm asking you, do you want to be a peacemaker? Does it matter to you? A peacemaker with the other side of the political aisle, with other nationalities, with, with those guys. I mean, just people that you don't like. Do you want to be a peacemaker with him? Do you want to be that? It's not easy. It's hard. But I'm going to close with this. The Bible says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they haven't heard? And how are they to hear without someone telling them? And how are they to preach to someone else unless they're sent? As it is written, and I want to talk about this for a second, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And the picture there is of someone running through the, the Israel mountains, the, the hills, running as fast as they can with good news. That's who we're supposed to be. We are the people who are supposed to bring good news. I'm, I'm going to close there. You need, to, you need on your own time to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God talks about a ministry of reconciliation that we have. Where we bringing this peace, we, need, we reconcile people. We, we bring them to a place where God reconciles them through the Holy Spirit. You can't save anybody, right? On your own time, please, if, if this has touched your heart at all, Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at the second chapter of Ephesians. We, just, we don't have time to do that. But that is the story of how God has reconciled man to himself. And they're beautiful things. I pray it's touched your heart. I pray you want to be a peacemaker. I pray that you've given your life to Jesus and that you know who Jesus is. If you don't know who Jesus is, talk to me, talk to one of the elders. If, if you're visiting, grab anybody around you and say, I don't know this Jesus that guy's talking about. It, we're talking about eternity. We're talking about life in hell for eternity or the bliss of heaven forever. And nothing matters more. Let's pray and we'll be finished for the day. God, we, we, we need you to do it. We can walk around all day long in our own strength and try to do things and it'll amount to nothing. But if you're with us, 
By your power, people will be saved and we will make peace. What we want is to see, we want to see peace in relationships, God, obviously. But what we want, what we have to want, is to see someone who is not at peace with you get to the point where they are through Jesus Christ. We ask that today in his name. Amen. Somebody's happy.